0: This is we're live. Let's go.
1: Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Into the Light. We're so excited today to see to have Jaden on our podcast today, and Aaron is going to introduce him a little bit.
0: I I couldn't be happier to have my brother Jaden on the podcast right now. I could tell probably a hundred stories about times we had together as little kids. But Jane and I have known each other since, gosh, probably like 2004. It's probably been almost 20 years, like legit 20 years. And we're getting we, old. We're getting old, man. Holy cow. <laughs> Jane and I were super tight growing up. i school junior high. Our families would get together every week, what we call party nights. Jaden would come over to my my house and I had hardwood floors in my room with like a little like five foot basketball hoop and we would ball out for hours just like getting sweaty staking up that room man it was like 90 degrees in there but man some some good times some good times with Jaden. Jaden, welcome to the podcast man.
2: Thank you guys for having me it's really a pleasure and an honor to be here Aaron's one of my like he said one of my first friends that uh, I haven't stopped looking up to since so it's a pleasure to be here because of that I know Bray is a a wonderful lady herself, just being friends with Aaron. I know he only associates himself with some of the top. So this is wonderful to be here with both of you. It's reciprocal, man. It's
0: reciprocal. I also, I wanted to, I wanted to share two stories actually before we get started, before we dive into Jaden's story. The first one is kind of funnier and second one's a little bit more serious. So Venus and Ferb has been one of my favorite shows my whole life. One time I was over at Jaden's house and I hadn't watched Venus and Ferb ever, but we were sitting around like, we all have, we both have a lot of brothers. We're sitting around with all our brothers, a couple of their friends. And we turn on season one, episode whatever, it's the Lake Nose Monster. And I just, it's been my favorite episode ever since. I remember we were all just like crying around this stupid Phineas and Ferb episode. Some good memories. But I wanted to, I wanted to share as well. So both of our, both mine and Jaden's little sisters, they have this really, really rare, disorder called polymicrogyria and my sister was diagnosed I mean pretty much right when she was born and we I grew up in Ogden we moved to West Point where Jane and I grew up around 2004-ish and I don't know how many people there are in the United States that have this specific brain disorder but by God's grace we moved into the same ward as a family that had uh, a daughter that had microgyria, and seeing Emma and Ashlyn grow up together and just the freaking sweet spirits that they are, man. It's, it's changed my life. I'm, I'm sure it's changed yours as well, Jane.
2: Yeah, totally. I'm glad you bring them up, Aaron. You know, my, I often think about my, my little sister and you, again, you could say the same, I'm sure, with Emma. And I wouldn't be half the man I am today if it wasn't, for example. It's amazing how God can take an imperfection like microgyria. And turn it into a perfect, a perfect plan, such as you know the lifestyle that mine's turned out to be, all because of her in my life. So yeah, that's so tender and neat that you brought that up, and it's precious.
0: Man, I'm already crying, like legit, just even thinking about that.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: I agree. Well, let's let's jump into it, Bray. You want to you want to start us out with a little intro question?
1: Yeah, I obviously coming from West Point and living there. You come from or you grew up a lot around a lot of members. And so I was just kind of wondering within your family, what is kind of like the dynamic within your family with the church, with the gospel, and kind of how did you grow up with relation to that? Were you, were you inactive? Were you strong in the gospel? And kind of what was your relationship with God?
2: It's kind yeah. of a question, but. Sure thing. I'm sure most people may be listening to this podcast today are, are members, but if you're not a member, um, the best way to explain my family upbringing is in 1st Nephi, chapter 1, verse 1, and that's in the Book of Mormon. And Nephi is, is the man speaking in this verse. He says, I, Nephi, have been good of good in the carrots. and the parents. And that's how I'd explain my upbringing, Ray. I was born of some of you know the best parents I, I can think of. I'm so blessed to have Glenn and Lori, a little shout out there as my, as my parents. They raised us in the gospel very strong, and they taught us right. And they taught us how to be respectful. Uh, individuals and to love Christ and put him to serve our lives. But that wasn't the case for, you know, my extended family. I was actually pretty split growing up, spending time with my dad's side and my mom's side. They did a really good job at allowing us to spend time with both sides of the family. And my mom's side fell apart in the gospel when she was in college. Grandparents went through a divorce that kind of just destroyed the the family basis in their family. And she's the only current member, active member in the church. Or her entire side of the family. And so obviously family parties, interactions with that side were a little bit different than on my father's side who everybody's still attending very active. We grew up in a very Christ-like center environment when we were spending time with them. So that's a little bit of the dynamic of the family. The family was pivotal for us extended family. We, I mean, every holiday we were with one of the families, family birthday parties, you, you name it, we were with family. That was part of us growing up. And so we had a lot of influences on both sides.
1: That's awesome. And how were how were you in relation to the gospel? Well, your your family, one side was pretty active, the other wasn't, but like how how was your testimony and how did you kind of take all of the gospel teachings in your life?
2: Yeah, to be honest, from quite a young age, I can't point it down, but I'd say as early as maybe even nine or ten years old, I quickly found this weird comfort or confidence in participating in things that opposed what I was taught at church, the, the commandments or gospel principles that I was taught, anything that went against that, I found confidence and a weird comfort in those kinds of things. And so from, you know, young age up until nine, I would say I was active and I listened and did what mom and dad said or what primary had taught me. But once I learned to like think for myself or do for myself, I quickly be, began to rebel <laughs> and I just started doing things that I thought would be funny or would gain respect of the people that weren't a part of the church. And that became yes. a way I lived and directed my life. I Those were the people I tried to get attention from rather than those of the members. And so I kind of, I think I got that example from seeing my mom's side grow up and they didn't have to go to church on Sunday, They great coffee. They got to go boating on Sunday, things like that. You know, they they were living that. The lifestyle I thought at the time, and I wanted that. And so I think that's kind of what set my my confidence or that comfort level in doing those kind of things because I, I witnessed people do it and meant seemingly happy lives without the gospel. So I thought that would be insane.
0: So I'm kind of I'm kind of assuming something right here. So tell me if I'm wrong. But how was it living that double life between, you know, being in a super active family? I'm assuming you still went to church with your family on right, some days. Right. Yeah, like Elementary Junior High, high school. But then at the same time not really having a testimony, not really knowing why you're doing it,
2: yeah yeah, totally that's at, at the time it almost lived felt like I was living a secret, right, when I was uh living more so on the the gospel side because I would argue that it was only my family and my my ward family that knew that I was this good kid or went to church on Sundays, but the people I was interested in, I wanted them to know that that was kind of my back, you know, I didn't want them to know that that's the person I was, so. I almost kept my spiritual life a secret rather than my, I don't know what you would call it, my my wild lifestyle a secret. That, that's what I wanted people to see me as, you know. A funny example, I guess, that first cousin of mine when he asked that questionnaire was, it comes to ninth grade. I was living pretty wild lifestyle, and I was in a, in a line to run a race. My family, we love to run, kind of bringing it back to my little sister. She loves to run, so by default, we love to run. If it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't. And... We were waiting in line up on one of these buses to get up to the starting line. And I tied my shirt as if I was wearing like a, a bra or a girl. I had to pull it up. And I pulled my pants up real high. And I was out there just making a fool of myself. And I was just eating up the attention. I was kissing from everybody in the line. And my mom was so embarrassed because she knew I, I knew better. Right? But I loved it, right? Again, I loved that attention. On the other side, I remember being asked to serve as it was probably teacher's porn president in my ward. And again, for those that maybe aren't part of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Saints, that is just a youth cult group, and I was asked to be the, the youth president of my the group my age, and I remember sitting in front of Bishop, and I couldn't ever meet with the Bishop without crying because to his face I told him, "Yeah, I would, I would do it," but I knew that I did not want to do it, nor should I. And so, I just remember that that was that was the dynamic right there. I cried when I was doing what I was supposed to, but I would live it up when I was doing when I wasn't
0: supposed to. Be. Man, you're a, you're a wild man tying your shirt into a bra, bro. Yeah. What a rebel. <laughs> right, right.
2: What a rebel, man.
0: <laughs> no, but I think, I think this is what attracts me so much to your story and something that I relate to so well is because me with my background in pornography addiction, like you're living a double life, right? Yeah. You've been, you're keeping one part of your life a secret to a certain group of people, you're keeping another part of your life a secret to the other group of people. And it's kind of like this, this modern day, everyone, I feel like everybody at one point in their lives is the prodigal son, right? But it's just this modern day prodigal son story, which I feel like is one of the most powerful things. Yeah, very true. So let's continue. How did, how did it, how did this kind of rebellious streak continue for you in junior high and, and into high school?
2: Sure. Yeah, as I've been thinking about this, if I were to give like a name to this podcast or to what I'm about to share and just kind of the events that roll out in my life, I'd probably name it not necessarily overcoming my you know, drug addiction or overcoming whatever so addiction. I'd probably name it recognizing the Lord's plan as the higher plan. And mm-hmm. I, I that'll come full circle and I'll probably refer to that again. But that's kind of the way that my, my story kind of plays out. And so, again, my plan was to become like my mom's side of the family. My plan was to do everything that the church teaches and to do opposite of what the church kind of taught. And so in junior high, ninth grade is, and I think when it all started, I made really good friends. And one friend in particular, I remember this was my first introduction, actually to pornography. And he just had it on his phone. He brought it up at a lurch one time and everybody wanted to crowd around him. And so of course I wanted to partake in whatever was going on. I looked at it, and this is what protected me from actually becoming uh, addicted probably to pornography. I remember this very distinctly, even today, just the disgust I felt when I looked at it. You know, I was just, this is just, you know, this is terrible. It doesn't make me feel good. And I just thought it was disgusting that people were even doing that. Um, But I saw the way he got attention. And so I would say that's what kind of drove my desire to do, you know, the radical things. So how that progresses. I was kind of serving as student body officer, and I and all my friends had girlfriends, so I wanted a girlfriend. So I I ended up dating this girl, and every time we would hang out with our friends and our girlfriends, everyone would always ask me, hey, have you kissed her? Hey, have you kissed her or not? Remember, we were not supposed to date in the church until like 19, and so this kind of played that double life. I hadn't kissed her, and I hadn't kissed her, and I hadn't kissed her, and I, I refused to kiss her for whatever reason it was. But this... This this prompting kid, or not this prompting these these voices, my friends were coming to more men, It's the cool thing to do or whatnot. Story ends, I I never kissed her. And probably because I, I respected her baby and, and wanted her to not have to sacrifice things she knew, but because I never kissed her, after that, uh, you know, I partook in I tried to, to get what that would be cool as far as sexuality goes and interaction with my girlfriends. And so quickly thereafter it became, you know, making out and how far you could go with an individual, in an intimate relationship. And, that, and that's what started at first, kind of my my derail from the covenant path. I mean, it was probably my loves. So, you know, women are very beautiful, and and that's an enticement that if it's not respected, can go very in a negative direction. And that's the way I took it. That was my first rebellion, but it gained a lot of worldly appraise for for the things I did in that respect. And and that's what kind of took me off off the the ramps first, and, and progressed uh, eventually. I, I found myself in a friend circle where we are probably 30% members of the church and 70% non-members of the church. And by default, because there's different standards of living, my, my non-member friends in their households, they had alcohol. And they had that. And so coming from somebody who was raised and, and we believe that alcohol is an abusive substance, uh, it was the cool thing to then partake of it, right? Of these friends, mm-hmm. because they knew I wasn't supposed to, and I went against it. So, and that kind of made me cool, and so I remember, um, this is probably more tenth grade. But at nights when parents were gone, and there's a whole cupboard full of this, you know, just taking shots, just for my, just for the amusement of my friends, and not realizing at a young age how quickly that will take effect if you're doing. And so that just led to dumber decisions right after partaking in things like that.
0: Um, if it, you're okay, if you're okay please. with me interrupting you for a sec, please. I'm, uh, I'm just curious. Where do you feel like this? this need to to prove yourself to other people outside of you know members of the church came from
1: yeah and I was gonna ask too because I feel like I didn't grow up in Utah so I don't I didn't really experience this because I was kind of the minority in the church and in my belief system with my peers and I feel like since moving to Utah I've seen this a lot where it's kind of like the cool fun thing when you're like still a member but you're like kind of doing like edgy things you know like you're in the edgy one you're the one that like we could talk bad about the church with stuff like that like do you think the presence of lots of members around you kind of aid in that kind of
2: mindset I guess I think so I think I I mean when I I reflect back on it and what made me feel that way I think there's just this consensus in the environment in Utah speaking around so many members that I think everybody maybe has that thought. Everyone's like, what if I'm the one that's different? What will that bring me? Yes. I would argue that most people maybe feel that way. And for me, because I felt that, I kind of looked at it as nobody else is. And so this is my opportunity to shine. Like right? This is how I can gain a rapport from my name and become popular or you know, get the lifestyle that I want. So I think that's where it stemmed from was just being the one to do it because everybody else kind of talked about it maybe or that feeling was there and nobody did it. So if I did it, that would give me the attention and, and just... You know, popularity in high school and everyone's striving for that kind of stuff, the attention. And that's what I think drove it. Yeah. I
1: don't yeah, know absolutely. if I failed your question, Aaron,
0: but no, no, no. No, that was perfect. And I think it goes to show I remember little shout out here. One of one of mine and Jada's mutual friends' his name was Chucker. Chucker Matthews. Yeah. So
1: Matthew oh man. Was, yeah.
0: But yeah. I think it's because the high school that Jada and I grew up in it was Syracuse High. Probably seventy five percent member, yeah. Um, but I would I would hang around Chuck all the time, and this kid wasn't a member. But everyone around me would be like asking if he's a member or not because he's just such such a good dude. They're like, man, Chuck's like better than ninety percent of the people I know, and like rather right. like a very majority LDS community here. But yeah,
1: that's crazy. I really
0: do. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like part of being like everyone has a desire to feel unique, right, and loved in their own way for who they are. And sometimes that just drives people to do things against maybe what they feel like is right. I don't know. Were you, were you aware that you were going against your value system or had your values changed?
2: No, I, yeah. Dang, that's great clarification there. And I totally was going against it. And one other thought came to mind too. not only was I trying to get the, the attention from you know, my peers at school, but it was my mom's side of the family. We, again, that dynamic growing up, we spent a lot of time with them and so if I wanted to edge out my brothers or get attention from my aunts and uncles, I had to show that I didn't care for the church because they did it right? And so that was another big thing yeah. that, that I gained quick relationships and, and quick um, approval of them for the way I acted. And mm-hmm. I think that was driving it too. You know, I, nobody else says me, I know that they got my back in these things and so I'm making them happy.
1: Yeah,
2: that's a good turn.
1: 100%. Do you think, okay, so, so high school, you kind of live in this double life and then I'm guessing you kind of left the, left the nest and you kind of, what did you do with those values? Like, did you choose
2: one versus the other? Or how did you navigate mm-hmm. once you left? Sure. Yeah, totally. I it came to the point where it wasn't worth it, right, to try and live this double lifestyle. And so it was probably 11th grade when I just chose, yeah, I left the nest. That's when, it, you know, grandma, grandpa on dad's side, and mom and dad asking, are you going to serve a mission when you graduate? And that's when I started telling people, no. I told my bishop no, that mission wasn't planned and it just wasn't for me. And I can't say that I ever told people that I was planning on leaving the church. I don't know if people knew that, that, that was my plans, but people knew that I wasn't strongly active. You know, I would go to sacrament because my parents were there, but I'd quickly slough in second period to go home and, and just not even go to bat. You know, same thing with seminary. I had to enroll because my mom wanted me to be enrolled, but I would slough that often. And I, my mom would get phone calls. She's like, but if you don't want to go, I'll, sign you, I'll just take you out. It's like, well, if she takes me out of seminary, then I can't select a class period at school. So I felt like I still want to go type thing. But no, I became quickly that I, I began to live the lifestyle that I didn't really care who knew what I was kind of doing. That that's the that's the person I wanted to be. And and that led to just me, you know, becoming more comfortable and letting down my my walls to other things, substances and whatnot.
0: How did how did the progression of substances look like for you? Like I know you said you started out with alcohol, taking shots, things like that. Sure. Where'd it go from there?
2: Yeah, that was by far the easiest. And so I guess the best way to introduce this aspect of you know, my upbringing and kind of just my story, my, I was friends with a ton of athletes and we had this pact amongst us that we would never smoke. And, and that, becomes a, that becomes a distinction because not smoking is not same as not using drugs, right? And so from alcohol, without, without smoking, we try to look up and we had heard of DMD or cough syrup. And so we had a friend introduce us to cough syrup that you drink. Old bottom cough syrup, you get real high, and so that's what we resorted just to.
0: Trash your liver, but yeah, you get.
2: Oh uh, yeah, the way it's not had to make garbage, and and we resorted to that, and so it became a you know every school dance, every weekend party, kind of hangout where a lot of people were gathering, uh, things like that. You know, we would we'd go to Walmart, and and the worst part about it is one day I have to go back and I you do this tomorrow. Go back to Walmart and plan back for all the cough syrup. You would just. Steal and drink right there in the store. We wouldn't even buy it. And I, you know, I'm ashamed kind of to say that now. We go yeah. in the store and we would just chug it right there in the store and just throw it in the store trash and then just walk right out. And so we would just, that's how we would we'd use it. And that just shows we hear stories of people that are addicted to these things. They'll do whatever they can to get it. Right. And that was our way. We didn't have money nor could we just go buy cough concert that young. Right. And so that's how we would get it. And we go parties and it does feelings are permanent. And- the, the joy, the worldly joy, the temporary joy you feel from it, is enough to get you go back again and go back again. And so, I can honestly say that's that was my first addiction was was, uh, cough syrup, and, and we used that all the way up till senior year. That's that's what we got high off of. I'd been around we. I had friends, other friends outside of my my sports friends that had used it. I'd been around it, associated with it, and I think, say and use. The, the association of being around it to then desensitize it to me later on and to justify using it in different senses later on. So that's kind of my progressions in that. I don't know. If you're ready, I can just kind of roll right into the, the kind of progression of my full story. Yeah, keep
1: from
0: going. Here. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I want to, maybe, maybe an intro question to lead into that. Sure. When did you start yeah. to become aware of the path your life was going down?
2: I guess a, a clarifying, clarifying question to that. I, I can... I can honestly say, was know tenth eleventh grade. I was aware of the lifestyles I was choosing and the lifestyle I was heading towards. I wasn't aware of the consequences, mm-hmm. um, but I did I, like that was what I wanted. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, I was aware of it and I wasn't ashamed of it. And I was I was still living a great life. Um, by no means was I living in the trenches, or by no means did I feel like I was having to rely on crisis in from the drugs. Like drugs were my savior in a way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so that was like I was aware that I was choosing that lifestyle, but I wanted you know, that was what, that was what I was shooting for.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. How did how did this all? Sure.
2: See, yeah. So you went from this, and it's crazy looking back all the little minor miracles of the Lord as I reflect on it. You know, and I think that coming back to the name that I'll give this podcast, sometimes we don't recognize Lord's hand or His plan until retrospect. And I can see it now, but at the time, right, I totally thought I was in control of my plan. And so we had enjoyed these parties. We had enjoyed school dances and the extension that, the feelings that came from using cough syrup. And then I had friends branch off. And I made new friends from doing this, right? As soon as people knew that I was using drugs, I got introduced to new friends that were using weed and having those entertainments more, more frequently than just artists. And so we started hanging out with them on weekends and, and being around weed a lot more often. And so eventually this led to like, you know, big story, senior year, same thing, time of stuff. We were using we cough syrup at parties, but spring break came around. And for spring break, we were seniors and we wanted a huge plan for spring break. And so four friends and I, we had discussed with our parents. One of our friends had cousins that lived there and she had a trailer park. And she was going to let us stay in this trailer park all by ourselves. So we'd ask if our parents come and we could just travel to St. George on our own. And so we we're making plans and we had Got it okayed with our parents and whatnot and approved it. And I knew this whole time that I had two friends that were planning on bringing me to this to this trip. But I had another buddy of mine that we had this pack that never smoked weed. And I never let my parents knew that, of course, that that was the plan and even maybe lied and say that I never knew that that was going to happen. But, you know, they had told me that they were going to leave those. And that was, that was the plan. So we get there. Of course, as soon as we arrive in, in St. George, weed comes out, the drugs come out, and our two friends were using it. And right from the start, Hey, just do it. It'll be fun. It's fun if everyone's doing it. We, my friend and I, we held our ground really well for that first day. Events like longboarding and just going to dinner in the town and going to Dixie Rock. So those of you familiar with St. George, we did all those events. And our two friends used used the weed, and probably was invited to partake ten to fifteen times within that span of maybe six hours. It was just constant take, take, and having to say no, no, no. Well, the next day comes around and we have plans to go on a hike and. Morning, you know, morning dose of weed comes through and that invitation right at nine thirty AM, ready for this hike. Again, right at our face, Do you want to partake? And my friend gives in this time. He's like, Yeah, I'll partake. So now I know that I'm the only one sober. And so yeah. I was smart enough at the time to think, well, if he's partaking, I can't justify myself because I've got I've got to be safe and I've got to be responsible just to drive, right? To be able to get over all fence friends grass. So we go on this hike. Um, and this was, man, you know, I forget the name of the hike, but um, it's one of the hikes down there where you go into waterfalls and whatnot. And we come up on this ridge where we're looking down over this river that we've been hiking up, and we see these two girls coming up. And my, again, my friends are using substances. Make clarification: we had two friends that didn't have girlfriends, and two of us that did have girlfriends at the time. And up the hill behind us comes this beautiful, these beautiful girls. And it was just me and my friend that had girlfriends at the time. My other friends weren't there. So like, oh, no, my friend was using substance. And of course, I'm with my friend. I'm not acting straight. So we started floating it up with these girls. And I quickly realized that if I didn't do something different, now we we're going to jeopardize our relationships with, with the girlfriends that we had. And they weren't there. And so I just look over and there's this random guy. I don't even know his name to this day. I forget it. But there's this, this kid up there. And I would yell at him. I said, hey, come here. Because these girls were wanting to kiss us. I was like, hey, will you kiss this guy or kiss this girl? And he was like, sure. So they ended up kissing. <laughs> it. And of course, high schoolers were like, oh, and we're cheering for this guy. And he got a kiss. And so no uh, cheating or miss, anyway, miss, wrong actions were particular on our parts in respect to our girlfriends. But this was pivotal because had he not been there, one of us maybe would have sacrificed that or we would have backed out of the situation where we got ourselves out of it. One of those two situations. Well, these girls become pivotal in my story because we get their Snapchats. They're staying at this mansion. One of their friends has this mansion in town and they are having a pizza party that night. And so, of course, we're like, we hear a mansion, we hear a pizza party, we want to win. So we get there, we exchange Snapchats and, and we're prepared for that after our equal plans. Anyways, we hike down with them and we meet with these other, their other girls at the party. And I mean this with, with all respect, but just with the true fact that, you know, Guys are attracted to certain girls, right? And the other two girls were not as attracted to us as these two girls, which is a miracle in itself that it was those two that got separated because we probably wouldn't have approached the two that we ended up meeting. And I, I, again, I say it with all respect because I, they're beautiful and wonderful women. And some of my best friends today are those other two girls, not the two we first met. But we, we combined and we find our other two friends and we're all sharing this vibe. You know, we'll have this party tonight, pizza party at a mansion and no parents. This is wonderful, right? And so uh, we get back down and we get back to the apartment. Well, in that apartment, uh, one of my friends, the friend's cousin that owned it, or I guess not the apartment, but the trailer home, she had cannabis oil and she was a user herself of, of weed. And she was going to make us some, she taught us how to make weed brownies. And it, of course, the imitations came wrong again. And now this time they're stronger than ever because it wasn't smoking it. That pack that we had, it was eating yeah. it. And so quickly, I was able to justify my actions in partaking of the weed this time. And that night, what's crazy is every detail that I have left on my story was these things relate to me because of kind of the result of these actions here. But that not the next thing they knew, they'd invited me and I'd said no and they invited me again. And as we were getting ready to leave for the evening party at, at the mansion, they looked over and I was just chowing away on those brownies. I was just like, all right, let's go and preparing it. I have no idea how much I ate. I don't even remember, or neither do they. Put them in the bag, and we put them in our backpack, and we're gone. And knowing that we were all using at this time, we, we arranged for the girls to pick us up, so that we didn't have to, to be driving, knowing what we were doing. doing. Um, and we go to iceberg, and this is when it starts kicking in again. I'd used coughs syrup, but this was unreal. Like the feelings of high that were coming this time, I had never experienced before, and I could you feel it. And my, a lot. Yeah, I must have adjusted a ton, right? Yeah, the levels were insanely high. And I just could feel coming. I was just like, I wanted the attention from my friends because I was my first time. They had used it. I had it. I wanted to know what I was feeling right? Like. And so then I started, they were like going crazy with me because they were so excited for what I was about to experience. The girls could tell something was going on, but we never let them know. Well, then we moved, from, we transitioned from there to Dixie Rock and there's a party going on. And up on Dixie Rock, I'm sitting up there, and my friend relays the, the information to me, but I start panicking. I think my conscience comes to know that I'm in a situation where I'm under the influence of a bunch of dumb teenagers late at night on Dixie Rock, and the chances of cops being called possibly are, are maybe pretty high. Well, I end up freaking out, panicking, and I go to my friend, and I say, hey, we've got to get off this melon. I end up giving to him a reference to one of the more messages. I think it leaves the party when these two gentlemen go to Japan um, on scholarship and they're on this like welcome meeting yeah. and everybody's passing around eat or you know yeah cigarette or whatever and they get uh kicked out of school by guilty by association just because they had touched that and that came to my mind as i was there crazy how the spirit works as i was on that mountain so related to that i came in, i said we've got to go or else if the cops come work through we've got to sweeten in our in our system and i i don't remember that but he t- showed that to me and so i was aware of what was going on so we get off the mountain we're starting to head to the mansion finally. And I'm sitting in the car in the back seat, and I'm sitting next to some friends. And they told me I started just panicking kind of like crazy. I said, get it out of my head. Get it out of my head. It's taking over. Please call my mom. I started ranting off her phone number. Call her until her I've done. Tell her I'm so, so sorry. This is not what I want to do. I've gone too far this time. You know, get me out of this. Take me home. And I started freaking out. My parents or my friends were like, told me that. news was like, knock it off. Quit doing this. Like, just freaking everybody out what's going on. They were worried for me. And especially the girls, they had no idea what was going on because they didn't know what we were using, right? And so this whole drive back to the mansion, this is going on. And I snap out of it. And I was okay, it's okay. I was reading off text is what I told them. I was just reading a text. It wasn't me. And so we get out of the car and everybody goes into this mansion and I tell them, no, I'm okay. Just let me get a breather. Well, as they go inside, and I don't know the time frame from when this all happened, but I, when they had gone inside, and left me out there. I had passed out on the front porch of this, this mansion, which is straight out cold. And I don't know how long I've been there. But the, how this story and how I've known it now today, the owner of this house is a member. She's a widow. And her husband did really, really well. Beautiful. Really, really nice house. Huge mansion. She was getting ready for bed and she said it's about eleven thirty when she just got this prompting. Make sure your front porch lights are on. And she goes, I've always known, you know, I always turn on my front porch lights. And she's getting sure to go to bed. You know, I'll check in the morning. I'll be fine, is what she said. And then she said, it happened again. Go check those front porch lights. And she said, okay, I know when, when the Spirit tells me twice, I've got to go. So she goes to see the front porch lights. And I'm just there, cold, not responsive. She has no idea who I am. I'm just a stranger to her. And she screams. She freaks out. She yells at everybody else that her, you know, hanging out in the room Calls from come to the door. Do you know this kid? And of course, like, oh, yeah, this is our friend. And immediately, my friends know if we, cops are called or if they get a hunched, what's rude because we're, we're going to use the weed. And so they frantically, oh, he's fine. His parents are at the house. We'll just take him back to his home. He's probably just really tired. It's been a long day. And <laughs> well, I'm so, so grateful for this, for this gal. And, I, you know, shout out to Grandma Barbara. You know, I, I consider her my grandma today. What she's done in my life. For persisting, she said, no, I've seen situations. situation. Or I know this situation is not good. I'm calling the ambulance because he's not responsive. And we're getting into a hospital immediately. And so she immediately calls for an the ambulance. They help me into the ambulance. And they get me to the center. And Again, completely unconscious. I have no memory, even no memory of that, that party of iceberg. All these things just relate to me. Because the doctors, when I got there, they took me in. I end up having a catheter placed because I just was so unresponsive and they didn't know what the outcome was gonna be. And as time went on, they had, you know, determined I was like in a coma-like state for close to like seven hours. And it was coming and it was reaching the point I was gonna to have to be taken to the ICU. And the doctors had determined that that's where I needed to go and the ambulance was on its way to transfer me just from like emergency there to the ICU hospital. My parents had been called at this time. Um, my girlfriend at the time had been called and her mom drove down. My friend's parents had drove them down. My mom and dad were making their trip down, so this was a huge ordeal for everybody. And I wish I could tell the story on their side, but I, I don't know too many details of what their experience was like to this this happening. But I, I they, they they said as soon as like the ambulance pulled up and they're getting ready to go, they give them last goodbyes because nobody can be nice, I see. with me. So my parents are there and they invite my friends in there to come say last goodbyes. And they said as my friends were saying goodbyes, they were just They said a tear came down my eye. And they said that was just enough sign of consciousness for the doctors to refrain me from going down to the ICU. So a tear streamed down my eye and I, oh, there's a tear, that's good. And I stayed there for probably another four hours before I finally came out of this this coma-like state. My parents had videos that I still refused to watch this day, but um, when I first came out of it, my mom's words were she thought she was gonna have another disabled child as I came out of it, just the conditions I was in, I was mumbled speech, I had no awareness of where I was or what happened to me. She relates to me that I thought I'd been in a car accident with my family. Kind of no recollection at all of what happened with, with St. George. And this is the state that I'm waking up in. Uh, my first memories come when I wake up in, the, in a different state. I wake up in another room than what this room was. And I wake up to my friends all around me, their parents, my parents, my girlfriend, and her mom. And I was just devastated. Right? They told me what had happened used these substances and, and what had all gone down and I was, you know, in a mess. I was a complete mess. And they told me that I'd been come like state unresponsive this whole time. And that, you know, things may not look too good. They had given me three to seven days still in the hospital before they even released me because they didn't expect me to be able to talk or walk or things like that. They just didn't know. because of the levels which and they didn't know if things were laced either, right? They had no idea because they didn't know where we had gotten from. That's,
0: it's all, that's what I was gonna ask ask because... There had to have been some like fentanyl or something like for you to pass yeah.
2: out, right? And so because of the, they just did simple blood testing and because they only, you know, had the levels of the THC in my body and those levels were extremely high. My parents opted not to do further testing because if we did further testing, then the person that provided it would then be in jeopardy. And I because see. we were under the, we were underage and she would get a bunch of charges mm-hmm. and my parents agreed this, or, you know, on their, their kindness of their hearts. Also, the way that they saw all of us respond to the situation, they believed that this was enough, that we didn't need any more precautions for what we had done for our ashes, that this, what this had brought to us. So we have no idea today, which is crazy. But yeah, my first recollection was then devastated. I just don't even know what to think about life anymore, right? This life that I thought I was on top of and I had control over my players, my future. I mean, finally, almost breaching away from this double life, right? I was leaving the gospel and I was going to be okay. Finally, just sat in my front line. And in this realization of what I wanted out of life for the first time, really sunk in. And this ride in Asai, coming back to the name of it, kind of what I do this for this podcast is, you know, whose plan is greater, my plan or, or God's plan? But I have been taught from that. And which one was I going to choose at this point? And, you know, I didn't have to make that answer then. But then the, the owner of that trailer park and her mom ended up coming in visiting, which was sweet of them, to check in on me and so brave and courageous deep front my parents who so, you know they had theoretically done this to their child and and i i am grateful for them to this day and grateful yeah, how this story kind of ends is well, the first person i want to meet is that grandma who saved my life so i called that ambulance and allowed me to receive this help so we go to this mansion again beautiful home just uh withdrawn by this this building and we walk in she sits me down and she shares with me in her patriarchal a blessing um she was gifted in her patriarchal blessing the presence of guardian angels. And she looked at me in the eyes and said, those guardian angels are who saved your lives. And she said, I'm somebody special. I know that. So that means because my angels saved your life, you've got to be somebody special. And it wasn't for the special person that I was becoming on my voice. I knew that moment and the Lord told me that the only way that I was going to be special and fulfill that, that calling was to follow what that patriarchal blessing had felt, what I'd felt from her patriarchal blessing. Be true from what I had taught and taught. So it was at that moment to this day that I decided to choose the lifelong discipleship that I I, didn't, you know, I I didn't have a great voice. I didn't care. I didn't have a listening class. Seminary was a joke for me growing up. I mean, so I didn't have a testimony to build. Also, my testimony was good, that, that feeling that I had meeting with Grandma Barbara Jones. I mean, then again, I got to hear more parts of the story. The girls came and gave me big hugs, and they had no idea, but they just didn't judge me. They they loved me for who I was. They prayed I was okay, and the overwhelming love of my Savior. I you know I felt it for who I was, and who I could become, and because of that, I, you know that changed my decisions. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I was going to do whatever the word. And I knew that started with a mission. Like graduation was the next month, and I had to shape up my life. So the first time ever, I just felt the pride and joy that came from being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Lord of latter Saints. And the blessings, it comes when you humbly just obey his will and follow his precepts. And that came from, the, you know, Grandma Barbara Jones exempt from her sharing a bit of her her testimony. And so, you know, I think the second part of the story, everything that I've come to be is much greater. And I'm so grateful for that. But if it wasn't for that experience, you know, I'd be either a very complacent member of the church, maybe not even a wise, who knows what would have happened had I not chose that. But you know, for me, it was pivotal to, to have a big experience like that. I never looked back, ever. I didn't have to because of the way I felt being in the presence of Grandma Jones and what the wards love, truly so on. Hey,
0: Grandma Grandma Jones, I feel like in the last three or four episodes that we've done, one of the major things that I picked up on is that the people around us, these guardian angels, play such a bigger role okay. than we give credit for. Like God is looking out for us through these oh. other letters that are living their lives in a way That they can stay close to the spirit and receive those properties that are needed, right? That is, that's just incredible.
2: Yeah. My, my, I owe my life to her, truly, my testimony. It reminds me, Aaron, of a post I just saw you post today. And I think you guys put a stab on your Facebook about this, this quote you saw that we don't have time to live small lives. We have no influence if we choose to live a small life or to be suppressed by what might think of us. We can, we, God can't afford for us to do that. She's a prime example of somebody that's stood up and let her light shine on top of a man on top and yeah yeah totally i've played big it. roles in our lives
0: i'm getting chills man that's, yeah. that's incredible
2: well, that
1: was i've never cried on an episode before <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah me either and this is it's been such a pleasure again i i i often reflect to that experience but i hadn't thought about all these little details um for such a long time but it's truly uh it's been a mercy year. I, you know, a, a privilege to stand as a witness because of what he did for me in that moment. Um, and this is my first experience sharing it as a witness. And so thank you to you guys for allowing me to use this example as a witness of Christ. Okay. Can we
0: okay. Is it okay? Can we dive in a little bit into your this Because I feel yeah. like your That's testimony a big, a big reason that your testimony is so powerful because. is because, and I felt this in my own life is because the debt that you feel towards the Savior and towards people that helped you get back on the covenant path, yeah. right? So true. What, what was what was the repentance process like for you?
2: Yeah, yeah. Coming home, I knew that I had to get my life in shape. First of all, I just had to be humble to both sides of the family. I think that was the first thing that came the day after gotten home. I took a trip up to visit my great grandmother, who was in the home and she wasn't doing well. And this is on my mom's side, so I knew I had approached. My mom's side of the family asked for their apologies for living a lifestyle that I needed to be opposite of, of what I lived, but also be honest with them of the lifestyle I was going to choose going forward and be okay with the way they would look at me because I'd gained a lot of respect for them from what I had been. But uh, whether or not they lost all respect for me before choosing the gospel or not, I had to be okay with it. Um, but I didn't matter to ride right? that debt to pay the war. It was worth it. But then on the opposite side, you know, ask for forgiveness for the way I treated family um, and that was that first step was just asking forgiveness from both sides of the family, my close ones that I had cared less about almost because of what I wanted for myself and yeah. those self effects And then the second part was most definitely seeing a bishop. And I don't think I've ever cried harder than visiting my bishop and telling him that you know, my, my life as a priesthood holder, my life as a, as a member of the church had been lied and that I had never seen my bishop prior to this for anything. Not that I shouldn't have, but I just, I didn't want it because I didn't care for it. Right. But I honestly wanted a full repentance and, I'm so grateful for, again, shout out to Bishop Kirkman for his love. And, and for anybody who, Bishop Lonnie Kirkman changed my life. And for anybody out there who's listening, who's just thinking of, you know, how can you feel accepted or how can you even gain the courage to to share maybe some, some things that you've done that you're not proud of. Um, I can honestly say I would have thought Bishop Kirkman was the last person to just give me a hug and be okay with the person I was coming out of it. You know, I didn't know him very well, but I. I didn't matter for me at the time, and I was just so withdrawn. It made me cry even more when he told me looked me in the eyes, that he didn't judge me. I wanted him to suffer me, but the love of the Lord is, is not that way. It made me cry even more to just feel that of his love for me and who I could like be. Normal. And the Savior just embraces that. You just go to him and show him your best. He put it out on her table, and that's what I had to do. And what's crazy is I wasn't perfect. I think it was three days later, one of the girls on that trip we continued to talk with her. Girlfriend that had broken up with me, broke the decisions I had made. I was in good influence in her life and rightfully so. She's one of my best friends and her, her influence was pivotal in my life. And so I'm grateful for her and her family. But at that time I was with some friends. We were at a dinner and this girl actually she was sacrificing some of her own virtues. And one of my friends persuaded me to get her to send some not so good pictures three days after I had this, had this competitive process. So that next Sunday I had to go back to my mission and be like, Bishop, you'll never believe. But for my friends, I did this again. And, and so Satan never stops either. And that was embarrassing. But I, the repentance process and the feeling that I, I governed, laid it all out, that was pivotal. And it took time, right? I graduated in May. I could have went on a mission as soon as, as May 15th. Um, but because of the repentance process, it does take time. You, you just have to embrace that. Let the Lord work his power through you in whatever time that takes. It's different for everybody. And only the bishop can, can determine that.
1: Yeah, how does your the humility the humility that you gain just from that huge experience is like admirable because that is probably one of the biggest weapons that Satan's use is one humiliation and one pridefulness and I think that like can you kind of navigate us through like more deeply your process of being so humble to. To go to your family members and apologize and go to the bishop and give it all, because you you said you're in line I' love this, you wanted a full repentance, and I thought that was so beautiful because a full repentance is being completely humble to the situation and being completely vulnerable, no matter what the outcomes are. So can you kind of walk us through that like profoundly how how that humility process was because that is hard. That is
2: yeah. so- thank you, Bray, actually, for, for bringing this up, because as I reflect, I don't know if I'd ever been told by detail how you go through the repentance process or hearing a story from somebody before me that did it. I'd heard that and feel good, but I never heard of what that maybe took or felt like. So thank you for clarifying that and asking me to go a little bit deeper. The first, this first sense of humility came uh, from respect on Barbara's behalf. And the the way I felt around her, I knew that I would let her down. It's therefore letting my Savior down. But at the moment, it took a tangible being, you know, somebody on earth to be uh, accountable to. And it was Barbara for me. She had saved my life and she told me that her angels had saved my life, therefore I was special. So I was accountable to her. So I think that would be one of the first steps is you have to have somebody accountable to. Of course, you're accountable to God in the end. But for me, it took a being that I could talk to -to face-to-face to be accountable to and to show and to prove my humility, but what led after that was those feelings of joy that came from it. That's what or launched me into further humility because I would expect repercussion, right? To go to the bishop and say, I've been living a lie and, you know, everything you've asked me to do, I've done unworthily, you know, I would expect some kind of harsh, but for him to just wrap his arms around me and just say, you know what, I'm so grateful for you and you have a special story and you're going to do great things in the world and have all this confidence in me after I this Lost all trust in Him before. That's what like gave me a springboard forward to just be even more humble. Just that immediate blessing, and I believe in that. Your Lord gives us immediate blessings. Truly from ourselves to the core Mm -hmm. and do what He asks of us. We see it immediately; it's beautiful. So that would be the next springboard. That it just keeps you good going. Not that it's not easy. No, not that it's not hard going forward. But it's it gives you that push, that drive, that itch to to feel the true Savior's love.
0: I did, because it's obvious to me that you are a very spiritual guy. Like the spirit's so it's, strong in this conversation that we're having online. How did you come to recognize the spirit in your life through this process?
2: You know, it took, a, it took a real long time. Mission was something that, and a patriarchal blessing, I was the next step. All those things, I just knew they were next because of what we're taught. And, and those are great things to know what's next, but I didn't really feel it. And it took a long time to, to recognize the spirit Anytime I felt it, I knew I was feeling, feeling the spirit because I would cry. Anytime I felt it, I just bawl. and it took a long time to overcome. And I'm not that's a bad thing for anybody that's like me. I still fall to this thing when I feel the spirit, um, but I, I learned to to also adapt to that because I recognize it's coming from the spirit. But my first time was was sitting in a in a lesson on my mission. I guess let me back up. In MTC in the mission, I was invited by my MTC teacher to do what was called a faithful flip. And this is just to grab the scriptures, to be Bible, the Book of Mormon, pray with a very specific question and just open up the book. I never heard of this. Funnest way to study scripture. And I did it. And I, what the scripture had told me, I can't remember the exact reference, but it said, fear not for you have repented of your sins. You are worthy and go forth and, and gather my other sheep that are not of this fold. And for me, that was the answer that I needed. I, you know, I had been repented of. Uh, I was ready to serve my Henry Father and he was going to bless me on my mission. And so that was the first time I felt it. I was like, okay, that's what the that spirit feels like. And he spoke to me through scripture. Second experience was sitting in a lesson and hearing somebody say yes to baptism and knowing what that was going to bring to them and the way that that made me feel, you know, and, and the joy, you know, turning away everybody in their lives, kind of doing their own repentance process through water's baptism and seeing somebody else experience that same joy that I knew was a witness, a second witness to me that my experience is real, that God's penance process is real.
0: I love that. I love that so much. How did, let's, let's continue this a little bit. How did, how did your mission affect your testimony and, and the way you decided to live your life up to this point?
2: Oh boy, I cannot imagine my life without it. I was just recently, I'm, I, I've been accepted into dental school, but in the process of that, I was interviewing, and I was asked this question, if there was anything you could do in the previous three years differently, what would you do? And it, she stumped me. I looked at her in the face and I said, you know what, Mrs. Avery, I don't know if I can honestly tell you anything i do different because after choosing to serve a mission, I vowed that I'd be a lifelong disciple and that I would submit my will to the Lord. And I believe that the Lord's will, no matter how it plays out, is, is the way my life's supposed to be. So I can't tell you in my last three years, I time. So, so. That's how, what my mission did for me. filling the spirit, seeing what the gospel did in other people's lives. Serving in Samoa was an answer to prayer in itself. The, the Polynesian people are the humblest people and the happiest people in the world. They have nothing, literally nothing, and they love it. They're happy in poverty, and that just taught me that I didn't need much. I didn't need world of praise to be happy, um, and to just love the gospel. They're so Christ-like. Everything they do is for Christ, and so it strengthened my testimony of, of a Savior and a personal relationship with Him. So, my mission was everything. And then a huge, huge shout out to President Sotchi. They were mom and dad and they taught me lessons that I would probably never, my parents probably taught me all growing up, but I would never listen to them just because they're mom and dad, right. They taught me lessons or forever ingrained and in, I mean, they're examples to me of what it's like to be just stalwart disciples of Christ and, and mm-hmm. that kind of influence, you know, people. I, I look up to them and say everything.
0: Just, just a funny little anecdote. I remember I went to Jaden's homecoming talk with my whole family. We were all there. And we were like sitting back because I mean that chapel was still fan. Everybody okay. sitting there listening to Jaden. But we we were sitting in the back and, and Jaden gets up to speak after the sacrament. And uh he starts talking and we're like all look at each other like, what in the actual crap is he saying? Like we we cannot understand a single word she's saying. His his someone accent was so thick. Got I was it. like, I probably got like maybe like a hundred 50 words out of that time. Yeah. Like the spirit was so strong, like he helped it. And I was like, I have no idea what he's saying, man. This guy, this guy got the language down. He served with his full heart out there. Oh, <laughs> man. I Thanks, that. Aaron.
2: I, yeah, I sometimes wish I could go back. I would, I since lost that accent for sure. But oh man, I would, I would give anything to go back on a remission. I loved it, Gary. Loved you being the Lord's, yeah, Lord's servant.
1: That is so awesome. I had, and, and maybe this has to continue on with what aaron's question was about the repentance process, but yeah. Uh, you talked a lot about and I think this is pivotal, especially for the younger generation that our podcast kind of hits to. Um sure. you talked a lot about justifying your actions. And yeah. and and you would and Satan would use these tools because it's not I like I always think that too. I it's not inherently you. That's what I think. I think it's I think it's honestly Satan's tool to use to justify your action. And, and and you got really good at it. I mean, as teenagers do, as when you want to sin and when you want to rebel, you figure anything you can out to justify your action. How how did you kind of reverse that? I don't know if that's exactly correct and say, but how would you. I guess retrospectively look at those situations and and kind of deal with that, if you were to give somebody advice,
2: if that's what they were doing in their lives. They are experiencing that same kind of need yeah. to justify sinful actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The first thing that comes to my mind is kind of applying it to, to the real world. Uh, working on a business project right now, there are so many shortcuts that you can take, right? And there's so many reasons why you might want to shortcut something to save money, to save time, to gain a praise from somebody else. All these things, right, that the world, the aspects bringing to us. And you have to justify it because we're all born with, this light of Christ, every single one of you listening to this has the light of Christ no matter where you're at in you. And so there's this conscience born within us that we know right from wrong. And so when we make a wrong decision, it's like, you know, doing business in the wrong way. We have to justify ourselves to then be proud of what we're doing. And so that was, that's how I was feeling then. I knew I was making the right choice, but I think maybe I'm in a little bit of a different boat at the time because I was justifying it for something I thought I wanted. I knew I wasn't trying to hide. It. That's like what I wanted to be. But that light of Christ within me was present. And I I couldn't deny that, but I didn't want to feel that, right? I wanted yeah. to be numb to that, to justify that. And so if you're in a situation where you're trying to justify it and hide it, you know, my advice to you to 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 be with it, you know, find somebody you truly trust and share. But you had to just be vulnerable with with what you're doing and get advice, even if you're not going to stop tomorrow. You know, know, cold turkey is the how it works out for most people, but a little progress is better than no progress. But if you're somebody that you just don't see the gospel ever blessing your lives, and you think that that path's actually the path of happiness, you know, I would invite you, and maybe you're not justifying it, right? That's just your lifestyle that you're living. I'd invite you to participate or join people who, don't partake in those substances and see and share or field experiences, you know, listen to these podcasts. You know, Bray and Erin, you guys have done a wonderful job at finding people that have been in those boats that have seen, you know, worldly joy versus spiritual joy. and it's undeniable. You just can't deny the, the difference of, of joy and happiness in those fields That would be my advice.
1: Yeah, I would even add to that because I think that's great. I would even add to that, like sharing that with somebody that you want to replicate their life because there's a lot of trust in, yeah. in my life. But their lifestyle choices and how they live their life, I do not want to live like that. You know what I mean? Like, totally. and and I don't want my life to go in that direction. But if you have a trusted individual that they are they are doing what you potentially success looks to you, right? And yeah. share that with them and be vulnerable to somebody who you admire. I think would 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 I, would I would add to that because I think that. It is so easy to just kind of surround yourself with people that are gonna give you the advice you want to hear, but not actually the advice you need to
2: hear. I love that. You know, thank you for clarity. You know, I I myself learned from saying that. thank you for adding that on totally. Somebody you admire, you want to be because they have the the pure interest and in care for what you need to become. Yeah. Totally.
1: So awkward. I love that.
0: I, I wanna I wanna ask you real quick. There's this scripture verse that I've been turning into over and over again since I got back from my mission, and I feel like it resonates well here in your story, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. The three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount have always been my favorite in Old Scripture, whether it be in the New Testament or the Book of Mormon. But my favorite verses of the, of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6, verse 33. Super famous Scripture. It's going to sound familiar to everybody that hears it, but the Savior says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. How, how have you felt the truthfulness of those words in your life since you turned it around?
2: Man, you know, this is like allowing me to just bear solemn witness of, of my Savior and the testimony I've grown over the last, you know, all that shook down in 2017. So crazy, it's been six years since, you know, that come to Jesus experience in my testimony. So the last six years, this has been strengthening my testimony most is the scripture. And to give you a little example, I was serving on my mission and my time was coming short and I knew I had to go to school. My plans were to go to school college and then graduate with good grace and transfer out to a big university. My plan was going to Dallas so I knew I had to be competitive, but I I just didn't know what it took to get there. Well, on my mission, I had this impression that I needed to wrestle. My wrestling career wasn't over in in high school and I needed to pursue it. I wasn't the best, um, but I I was competitive enough to compete at a collegiate level. So my mom sent out, film. And two schools responded, one being Southern Virginia University, um, which is a, a church affiliated school yeah. with the Church of Jesus Christ of Saints out here on the East Coast of Virginia. I had never heard of it. I had never seen the place and nor did I know anything about it. But my mom, she'd given me three points of advice about school. One, it was affiliated with the church, which was slammed on. 2 I'd be able to wrestle. And I had a position there, a varsity position. And then three, they had a great pre-health program that had like a 99% placement rate graduate programs. And that's all she had to say. And the spirit told me, you need to go there. I had a very serious girlfriend, plans to kind of come home, get married, go to school in Utah, and I had to forego all this and for the for the Lord. And I cannot begin to explain the blessings that have come from that. You know, I, I've made connections that will be lifelong connections that I've gotten mentors that have helped me out into this field. I'm now accepted into dental school pursuing a career in dentistry, and I'm going to be a dentist one day. I got accepted into Tufts University up in Boston, and I'll be heading to Boston. So stay on the East Coast. Just all these miracles, um, blessings that overpour that I couldn't have ever imagined had I chose, you know, a, a, a rightly righteous decision to choose to come get married and to just stay in Utah. That would have been righteous, but it wasn't the Lord's bill. And so I can just give you numerous examples. An example I took, my whole life has become because putting putting first the kingdom of God and then even temporal blessings just come after it so yeah that was the Uh, first and and everything else after is just
1: yeah i love i love this because i love your enthusiasm to continue to one do good and to spread the gospel and do god's will and i think that is very admirable because i think i mean being returned missionaries ourselves i feel like we lose the light a little bit you know like when you come up from your mission you're like I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna back to people. people. I'm
2: studying, study two
1: hours a day. Like I'm gonna know those scriptures and preach every second I can. And I think it's it's intimidating when you get caught up into the world. So thank you for your visit. Yeah.
0: Yes. I, Jaden, your testimony is is beautiful, man. It's actually beautiful. I it's been such a joy
1: Yes. Yeah. This, this time. Aaron, where are we at on time? Because I have a couple more questions.
0: Go for it, man.
1: I gotta have a note. <laughs> so, one of the one of the things I just keep hearing over and over in your story that discipleship is a lifelong thing for you, right? And I guess one question I have is why to you is it worth it to be a disciple versus just a successful good person in this world? Because I think success and joy, well. Success and happiness can come from a lot of different avenues in life, right? But it's not necessarily the, the gospel route, right? But why do you feel like discipleship, the gospel, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints specifically, is worth it and the best choice in general, the best plan?
2: Right. Yeah. I would root it back to uh, my, my accountability partner was Barbara Jones. And she was it. But I quickly learned, especially through a mission like that, that my new accountability partner had to be done. I mean, through studying scripture and, and through how history repeats itself, I know God is lacking lifetime disciples. He, he know many are called, but few are chosen is a scripture that many are probably familiar with. And that is so true. I saw it on my mission. I saw it coming close from a mission. You know, I am by no means a man of good word or a man that's well-spoken nor am I a person of great knowledge in the gospel. My, I would say my testimony is founded upon the very simplest principles just because I don't have a lot of knowledge. Sometimes I find scripture society kind of be almost boring in some aspects. I know it's kind of crazy to say, but it's true. And for that reason, I never could picture myself serving in any great passions, but I saw in my mission how people were just complacent. And I saw how that affected their, their, their missionary work, and I saw how maybe that made an award feel so I said, I don't even care. One thing I can do is I can be obedient and I can try harder and I can walk far. And that's what I did. I, despite all my weaknesses, I did that and I found great success. I've continued to do that here. And so I think that in itself is why I chose it and why it's worth it is because God needs and we're accountable to him at the end. If you have a testimony, you're accountable to him to, to live it up and to, to strengthen that and to share it with everybody you can in the ways that the spirit whispers to you to do it. The second thing I would say to that is there is no other theory than knowing that you're on the Lord's errand. I felt that first when I was on my mission. I didn't have to worry about finances. I didn't have to worry about a girlfriend. I didn't have to worry about friends. All I had to do was worry about preaching the gospel and shaking my testimony. And if I was doing that, you know, I was okay. And the the peace and joy that comes in such a busy and loud world of knowing that you're on the Lord's will and that you're aligned with his will is matchless. I'm in the middle of starting a pretty big business with my parents. And even within my, you know, my mom's probably the rocks my family been so growing up she's just strongly that she's had doubts because she's got responsibilities and things like that with this business but i know that this lord's hand is in this and for that reason these fears and mountains of barriers and things like that just don't even phase me it seems because that's what the power of being on lord's errand feels like and so once you recognize that it's super hard to want to gloss of it because of the the way it feels and the peace it brings
1: yeah, so awesome what better way to follow than the most powerful person
2: Man, right, totally. And His plan we'll, will always be bigger than ours, no matter what we eat He'll always win. That's awesome. I,
1: I think
0: that's my last question, there. That's your last one. Yeah. Okay, I, I was waiting. I don't want to make sure I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, do that, Jaden. You're you're such a good freaking example to be there of what it means to not play small, right? We're we are God's sons and daughters, and and He has a work for us to do, and you are. An amazing example of trying your hardest to fulfill that work and I don't know it's it's so good to reconnect with your brother
2: yeah likewise uh thank you so much Aaron Grant. for those of you guys listening from the time Aaron and I were young you know I I cared more about what I looked like and in, in the clothes I wore Aaron knew every player on Utah Jazz Aaron was studying studious in school A time of like eight years old right this guy was just had it all right and so to be able to just reconnect with you, Aaron, and to see that you're still the same, that you're organized, that you've gotten life checked, and that you yourself are just a disciple and a savior. It makes me feel really good to, to connect with you and know that I'm in, in good presence. And so, thank you, man. Appreciate it. And Bray, it's been such a pleasure to get to know you. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for what you're doing no here. Uh, all the listeners out there are so blessed for what you guys do. I know you guys are touching millions of people out there in the world by, by what you guys do here. I'm glad they're, they're
0: blessed. The listeners are blessed because of people like you, man. That's okay. that's, that's, that's the truth. I think you're going to send the last question, Bray.
1: I'll send it. Yeah. So we ask this on every episode, but um, from your story, your very powerful story of repentance and 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 following God's will, what is one thing that somebody in your position that you would like to bring into the light to kind of, Bring awareness to one, but also kind of teach retrospectively of of the one thing that uh, that if you had this piece of information, you would maybe the outcome would have been different.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I know by no means does every or a single experience reach everybody. So I know that there's probably you know, if even there's just one listener out there that wasn't the both, I wasn't. You know, my situation was. I had seen a lifestyle outside of the church that seemed way easier, way more fruitful, and a lot more enjoyable. And that's what I wanted, and that's where I was heading, right? So I felt like I was connected with my plan, and I was. And that's where it brought me joy. And so I wasn't in this scenario where I wanted out. I wanted what I was pursuing. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a group and audience I'm probably speaking to today, but I hope this will apply to, to however. And I hope the Spirit maybe will will take this to the hearts of the listeners to this. You know, if I were to go back into that time, and know what giving your full effort to the truth that you feel would do for you, I think that would have prevented me from everything I ever pursued that the adversary, you know, took hold of me and directed my life. And even if it was just, you know, I didn't, I liked that my my family drank coffee or they they played on Sundays and they didn't have to stay at home or whatever. But I knew that if I gave my full attention in Sunday school or in seminary, the strength that would come from that, just giving God a chance with yeah. your full heart one time, I think that power in itself would have would yeah. have kept me from from what happened in my life. And and I think I would have came out to be the same man because that's the power yeah. that God has. Give him one hundred percent your effort one time. It's all it takes one time and the blessings yeah. that come from it will keep going. I love it. I
1: love it. That is probably one of my favorite answers so far. Jen, and thank you again for coming on to our podcast i've learned so much i took so many notes in this episode and i know that this is this is a critical time in history it's the second coming's coming okay oh man it, it's something we need to prepare for and the best way to do it is what you have have taught us today mm-hmm. full humility full repentance and full dedication to the lord so i'm grateful for your example and for what you taught us today
2: yeah, yeah. and, I, and please feel free, anybody listening or anybody that wants to reach out with more details or ask for the questions. You know, this experience is just an opportunity for me to understand that it's an ability and a, and a means to help people facing struggle times and not. that was never brought to light until today because of your guys' example. So I want just people to know you can find me on Facebook or reach out to Aaron or Braylon and you guys can get my personal number. I'm okay with anybody reaching out to me. I Actually, I my testimony is that of we're giving experiences for, uh, to share with people or, and to help people out. So I would love to to do that in a way that I can.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll link everything in the show notes and, um, we will post on our Instagram about, um, Jaden's information. So thank you guys for listening to today's episode.
0: Jaden, thank you. Thank you, brother. It's been a blessing to me. It's going to bless so many people.
2: Thank you guys. Really. Yes. It was a wonderful opportunity. I just, Send mercy a reminder to me today that, you know, how the words and the details of the details of our lives. It's just remarkable. Yeah. And cool. what he does, he's, in, he's governing everybody out here, which is great. You know, seven billion, eight billion people in the hands and all their lives. Imagine what, what we can do if they just unite and come into one. And one day, right? One day, we're going to see what that shows like. Amen, brother. Amen. And, well, when I'm in Utah, I want to link up with all you. Let's go, Lawrence. Yes. Let's go, mm-hmm. and We got we to gotta get together soon amen is that man absolutely yeah great righty. Love, love you love you guys yeah thank you so much we'll stay in touch okay we'll talk to you next
0: week Jane. i'm gonna send you a text right now
2: all right see you bye okay.